recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink of Christagenia.org, and this is Christagenia on Talk Show, perhaps, due to some technical problems with Talk Show, this program is starting a few minutes late, later than normal. Today is Friday, November 30th, 2012. According to certain Christian identity charlatans, the world has 22 days left. I am going to schedule a program at 11 p.m. It's a Friday. I have a regularly scheduled program that evening where I will present whatever material I'm up to at the time. It may or may not be one of the last chapters of Luke. I think it it, it might be something different by then. I can't see the future, right? However, at 11 p.m. after a one-hour break, I will do. I will be here on Talk Show to discuss the charlatans who insist on predicting the end of the world and how such behavior does not belong in Christian identity. I will take callers that evening from the regular, regularly attending group, people that we know. I won't take calls from trolls and strangers and troublemakers and ADL agents and Jews like Martin Lindstedt and people like that. I am being slandered again by the universalist faction within Christian identity. They should call themselves misidentity and leave the Christian part out of it. My answer to their latest lies has been posted on the Christogenia forum in the section entitled Christian Identity Directions. The same charlatans are glorying that the number of my talk show listeners to my programs has dropped. That is true. But what the fools do not realize is that now more people listen on Christogenia's chat page or through the two Christogenia streaming radio servers that I broadcast these live programs on. These live programs on. More people listen there than those listening on TalkShoe. Christogenia is independent of TalkShoe for our programs, and we have been for quite some time. We only simulcast programs on TalkShoe in order to maintain the additional public presence. Just as had happened the past four months in running, and with all certainty, another 70,000-plus podcasts will have been downloaded from Christagenia.org for the month of November. That includes over 50,000 podcasts from the main Christagenia.org site alone. We praise Yahweh and thank Yahweh for that. Tonight I will present the Gospel of Luke, Chapter 21, Part 2. We had begun this, this chapter of Luke two weeks ago here on this program. I'm going to get right into it. I'm going to overlap a little bit. I'm going to wind back a little bit to verse 20 of that chapter of Luke. Therefore, I won't give a recap of what I covered last week because the first several minutes of this program will be the recap. But when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, then you know that her desolation has come near. Then those in Judea must flee into the mountains, and those in her midst, must leave the land, and those in the countryside must not enter into her. 
Two weeks ago in our presentation of the first half of this chapter, we saw how these words recorded by Luke were perfectly fulfilled in history exactly as they were recorded. Jerusalem was surrounded by armies during the siege of Cestius Gallus in 66 AD. And then Cestius withdrew from the city, as Josephus the historian attests, for no apparent reason. A couple of years later, the Roman armies under Titus besieged and destroyed the city. In the interim, as Josephus attests, many of the better people fled the city for good. Josephus also attests to the vile nature of all those who remained behind, who were for the most part destroyed by Titus's armies. Now we shall see now, now we shall present the second half of Luke chapter twenty one, where we left off discussing verses twenty through two through twenty four, and we had introduced the parable of the good and the bad figs from Jeremiah chapter twenty four. First I'll repeat the passage of scripture from Luke chapter 21 verse 22 because these are the days of vengeance by which all the things written are to be fulfilled woe to those having conceived and to those with sucklings in those days for there should be great violence upon the earth and wrath for this people and they shall fall by the edge of the sword and they shall be taken away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem shall be tread upon by the heathens until the times of the heathens should be fulfilled. Two weeks ago, ending our presentation of the first chapter of Luke 21, we read the parable of the good and the bad figs, which is found in Jeremiah chapter 24. We read it in relation to this verse, or, or to this passage, I should say. We saw from the parable that, ostensibly, there were good figs in Jerusalem, which Jeremiah was shown, and that there were also already bad figs in Jerusalem, which Jeremiah was shown. Zedekiah the king and his princes, as many surface readers of scripture assume, were not themselves bad figs. I've seen many people in identity attempt to profess that. But rather, Zedekiah and his princes were to be given over to the bad figs. This is important because this correlates perfectly with history. Here once again are the last few verses of Jeremiah chapter 24 from verse 8. And as the evil figs which cannot be eaten, they are so evil Jeremiah already saw the evil figs. They were already there. Surely, thus saith Yahweh. Excuse me. So will I give Zedekiah, the king of Judah, and his princes, and the residue of Jerusalem that remain in this land, and them that dwell in the land of Egypt, and I will deliver them to be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth, for they hurt to be a reproach and a proverb and a taunt and a curse in all places whither I shall drive them. And I will send a sword, the famine, and the pestilence among them till they be consumed from off the land that I gave unto them and to their fathers.
Now we'd like to read from Jeremiah chapter 29, and I'm going to read the entire chapter. Now that we have Jeremiah, the end of Jeremiah chapter 24 fresh in our minds, Jeremiah chapter 29 speaks of much the same thing. Now these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem unto the elders, unto the residue of the elders which were carried away captives, and to the priests, and to the prophets, and to all the people whom the book of Drezar had driven, had carried away captive from Jerusalem to Babylon. After the Jeconiah the king, and the queen, and the eunuchs, the princes of Judah and Jerusalem, and the carpenters and the smiths were departed from Jerusalem. By the hand of Elisah, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadrezzar, king of Babylon, saying, Thus saith Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, unto all that are carried away captives, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem unto Babylon. Build ye houses, and dwell in them, and plant gardens, and eat the fruit of them. Take ye wives, and beget sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons, and give your daughters to husbands, that they may bear sons and daughters, that you may be increased there, and not diminished. And seek the peace of the city, whither I have caused you to be carried away captives. And pray unto Yahweh for it, for in the peace thereof you shall have peace. For thus saith Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, let not your prophets and your diviners that be in the midst of you deceive you, neither hearken to your dreams which you cause to be, heard, to be dreamed. For they prophesy falsely unto you in my name. I have not sent them, saith Yahweh. For thus saith Yahweh, that after seventy years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you in causing you to return to this place. Of course, only 42,000 returned, right? For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith Yahweh, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an unexpected end. Then shall you call upon me, and you shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken to you. And you shall seek me and find me, when you shall search for me with all your heart. And I will be found of you, saith Yahweh, and I will turn away your captivity. And I will gather you from all the nations, from all the places whither I have driven you, saith Yahweh. And I will bring you again into the place where I caused you to be carried away captive. Because you have said, Yahweh has raised up prophets for us in Babylon. Note it this, note it thus saith Yahweh of the king that sits upon the throne of David. And of all the people that dwell in the city, and of your brethren that are not gone forth with you into captivity, thus saith Yahweh of hosts, Behold, I will send upon them the sword, the famine, and the pestilence, and I will make them like, I will make them like vile figs that cannot be eaten, they are so evil. In the first place, they were not bad figs. As part of their punishment for disobedience and following the false prophets, they were going to be made to become like bad figs. Verse 18 and I will persecute them with the sword and with the famine and with the pestilence and will deliver them to be removed to all the kingdoms of the earth to be a curse and an astonishment and a hissing and a reproach among all the nations where I have driven them because they have not hearkened to my word, saith Yahweh, 
which I sent unto them by my servants, the prophets, rising up early and sending them, but you would not hear, saith Yahweh. The important thing to understand there is that they were not bad figs, but for their disobedience, they would become like bad figs. And then they would be distributed into all of the nations, the kingdoms of the earth, to be a curse and an astonishment and a hissing and a reproach. The same language used of Zedekiah and of his princes in Jeremiah chapter 24 is used of the disobedient of the remnant of Judah who followed the false prophets of Yahweh which Yahweh did not send here in Jeremiah chapter 29. They were to be made to become like bad figs and they would be rejected and punished and be a curse wherever they were driven. It is also clear that if the worst of the disobedient of Judah and Jerusalem were not bad figs themselves, but were to be made like bad figs, then the bad figs in Jerusalem, which Jeremiah was first shown, could not have been Israelites. Once we correctly understand these prophecies, and see that a large portion of the remnant in Jerusalem were to be made like bad figs, then we can understand the subsequent history of Judah in a biblical context, where the remnant of Babylon, as well as many of those who returned to Judea, had eventually mingled themselves in with the Canaanites and Edomites in the centuries prior to the ministry of Christ. The original bad figs which Jeremiah was shown in the parable in Jeremiah chapter 24 must be the descendants of Cain, Canaan and Esau, who had infiltrated Judah in the earliest times. And Judah himself had descendants from one son, Shelah, who were the children of a Canaanite woman. 1 Chronicles 2.55 tells of the Kenite scribes in Judah who are clearly not of Judah. Malachi 2.11 attests that Judah had married the daughter of a strange god. Jeremiah chapter 2 and Ezekiel chapter 16 corroborate the assertion that Canaanites were in Jerusalem and had infiltrated Judah at such an early time, changing the nature of some of the people. I have planted thee a pleasant plant, how art thou turned into a strange vine unto me? Jeremiah chapter 2 and Ezekiel chapter 16 corroborate the assertion that Canaanites were in Jerusalem and had infiltrated Judah at such an early time as we saw here several weeks ago discussing the parable of the wicked husbandman when presenting Luke chapter 20. Upon exposing a couple of priests who had sought to corrupt the young woman of Judah, the prophet Daniel is said to have exclaimed, in Susanna, verse 56, from the King James Apocrypha, O thou seed of Canaan, and not of Judah, beauty has deceived thee, and lust has perverted thy heart. Later, many Edomites also became Judeans, adopted the religion of Judea. When the cities of Edomia had been subjected by the Judeans under John Hyrcanus, circa 130 B.C., 
The Edomites eventually took over the kingdom and performed many wicked deeds, even deicide, and in the name of the deity himself and of his people. This is how these people of Jeremiah chapters 24 and 29, this remnant of Jerusalem, became like the bad figs that over the years between the Babylonian captivity on to the time of Christ and on to 70 AD, many people of Judah had intermarried with the Canaanites and Edomites which were absorbed into the kingdom in the days of John Hyrcanus. Therefore, the same language which is used on these two occasions in Jeremiah, chapters 24 and 29, speaking of the punishment of those who were, to, who were to be made like the bad figs, is also used here in Luke of the enemies of Christ, where it says, from verse 23, There shall be great violence upon the earth, and wrath for this people. And they shall fall by the edge of the sword, and they shall be taken away captive into all nations. The bad figs of Judah those who race mixed with the Canaanites and the Edomites as a punishment from Yahweh for their disobedience. They were made like bad figs. These bad figs dispersed. From 70 AD forward. And those already in Babylon and in Rome and in other cities who never fulfilled the prophets by accepting Christianity as the children of Israel were going to do, as the Old Testament promises that the children of Israel would do. These bad figs dispersed from 70 AD forward are not truly genetic Israelites. They have no part because of their having been mixed, because of their being truly Edomites and Canaanites mixed in with the remnant of Judah. They have no part in the covenants of either the Old or the New Testaments, and they do not have any merit in their claims to Palestine or to be God's chosen. Rather, they are his sworn enemies. Luke here attested the words of Christ in Luke chapter 21, attest that the diaspora, and the Jews always point to the diaspora of 70 AD or, or thereabouts or later. They always point to that as their diaspora. And that's the dispersion of the enemies of Christ. It cannot be confused with the much earlier dispersions of the children of God. It's amazing that Christians ignore these verses when considering the nature of the Jew. Christ tells us that these people dispersed from 70 AD are his enemies, that they're dispersed to be a reproach and a taunt and a curse and a proverb. They're dispersed for punishment, not to be elevated to the highest positions in all of our governments, not to be venerated as holy religious figures. Oh, the disgust. The opening verses of the prophecy of Malachi perfectly describe the state of most Christians today. All of those who were caught in the deceit of Judeo-Christianity Malachi chapter 1, verse 1. The burden of the word of Yahweh to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, saith Yahweh. Yet you say, 
wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Saith Yahweh, yet I love Jacob, and I hated Esau. And laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. This is a dialogue. Yahweh tells the true children of Israel, who today would be the white, white Judeo-Christians and others, and other whites. Yahweh tells them that he loves them, yet their concern is for Esau. And how is that? That's because the Jews whom Judeo-Christians are worshipping are descended from the Edomites. And the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, are today masquerading as Israel. And they have all the Judeo-Christians concerned for their well-being. Yet, Yahweh God loves true Israel, genetic Israel which are the Anglo-Saxon and Celtic peoples. That can be proven in history. Most of them today are, sadly, Judeo-Christians or apostates. But those are the people that Yahweh loves. And he hates Esau. He hates the Jews. Malachi 1 verse 4. Whereas Edom saith, we are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Imagine that. Zionism. Thus saith Yahweh of hosts, they shall build, but I will throw down. And they shall call them the border of wickedness and the people against whom Yahweh has indignation forever. And your eyes shall see. And ye shall say, Yahweh will be magnified from the border of Israel. It is the children of Esau who have returned to rebuild the desolate places, thereby abominating the desolation. It is not the children of Israel. It is the children of Esau who always had their hands out seeking money from the children of Israel so that they can continue their charades in Palestine we are impoverished. Tell me that doesn't sound like the Jew. Yet, as it says in Obadiah, Yahweh will destroy them all. Obadiah 17, but upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance and there shall be holiness and the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions and the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau for stubble, and they shall kindle in them and devour them, and there shall not be anyone remaining of the house of Esau, for Yahweh has spoken it. Blessed is he who dashes their little ones against the stones. There are still some aspects of this prophecy in Luke chapter 21 to discuss, and therefore we shall read it again. from verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, then you know that her desolation has come near. Then those in Judea, 
must flee into the mountains, and those in her midst must leave the land, and those in the countryside must not enter into her, because these are the days of vengeance by which all the things written are to be fulfilled. Jeremiah chapter 19 promised the permanent destruction of old Jerusalem. Daniel chapter 9, which Paul alludes to in, six, in Romans chapter 16 at verse 20, and which Christ certainly has in mind here, promises the destruction of the city after the cutting off of the Messiah. Verse 23. Woe to those having conceived and to those with sucklings in those days. For there shall be great violence upon the earth and wrath for this people. And they shall fall by the edge of the sword. And they shall be taken away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem shall be tread upon by the heathens until the times of the heathen should be fulfilled. Several codices have confused readings of the last part of this passage. The Codex Beze has, and Jerusalem shall be tread upon by the heathens until when they should be fulfilled. The Codex Vaticanus also contains that reading, but adds the words at the end, and there shall be times of the heathens. They're both clearly confused renderings. The word heathens may be read either nations or peoples. Yet I shall let the context speak for itself, since these nations seem to be opposed to God and his people Israel. And in those instances, the Christogonian New Testament often employs the word heathen rather than nation as a translation of ethnos. Many commentators believe that this verse, and this is extant in British Israel circles, that this verse should be understood to mean until the times of the nations, meaning the nations of Israel, should be fulfilled. Yet such an interpretation cannot possibly be correct, since Israel has been promised in many places preservation forever, and to always be a nation, as long as there's a sun, moon, and stars, for instance, in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 36, and in Daniel 2.44, and in Daniel 7.27. Therefore, the time of the nations of Israel shall never be fulfilled. One must not confuse this passage of Luke here with the prophesied period of Israel's punishment, which is a totally separate topic. That would necessitate reading two ideas into the text here, which are not expressed. Israel's enemies, labeled therefore the heathen here, the heathen nations, the other nations, the the, the nations outside of the covenant with Christ. Israel's enemies have trampled Jerusalem underfoot since 70 AD, or actually longer than that, if you want to count the Edomite occupation. And surely we should pray that their time be fulfilled shortly. Now this prophecy certainly also seems to have a double fulfillment, if it is understood, and it can be demonstrated from many instances in the biblical prophets that Jerusalem in prophecy signifies not the ancient city, but instead signifies the seats of government of the people of Yahweh wherever they happen to be in times future to those prophets. 
The old city of Jerusalem, we are told in Jeremiah chapter 19, would be broken as a smashed bottle is broken, never to be made whole again. That the original city is not the city in Palestine today, even though it's called Jerusalem. It is clearly not the original city because first, the original city was leveled, and second, the people inhabiting Palestine today, the people inhabiting Jerusalem, are all bastards, they're all broken cisterns, they're all the enemies of God, every, each and every one of them. It awaits the cup of his wrath, as foretold in Malachi chapter 1, and in Obadiah, and elsewhere. Prophetic Jerusalem, the seats of government of the people of God, wherever they happen to be, the heathens are also trampling, and Satan has led them to do so. I use the term Satan, the adversary, as a collective term for the Edomite Jews. That's how I understand the term. It's a collective term for the enemies of God. They are the synagogue or the assembly of Satan. Although the meaning of the term also transcends that definition to include everything or everyone standing in opposition to God or created in opposition to the laws of God. That's how I use the term Satan. That Satan has deceived all the nations into trampling the people of God is clear from Revelation chapter 20. From verse 7, and when a thousand years are completed, a period which I believe began with, well, the thousand years completion happened with the French Revolution and the emancipation of the Jew, allowing Satan to crawl out of the pit, the adversary shall be released from his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them to battle of which the number of them is as the sand of the sea. And they have gone up upon the breast of the earth and encircled the encampment of the saints in the beloved city. And fire descended from out of heaven and devoured them. And the false accuser who deceived them is cast into the lake of fire and sulfur, where are also the beast and the false prophet. And they shall be tormented day and night for the eternal ages. That Satan's ability to do this is a test of Yahweh's people in the permissive will of Yahweh, just like the trial of Job, for example, is clear from other prophecies, among them Jeremiah chapter 31, where Yahweh says, Behold, the days come, saith Yahweh, that I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and with the seed of beast. And also, for instance, in Isaiah chapter 56, where Yahweh says, All ye beasts of the field come to devour. Yeah, all ye beasts in the forest. Today we're flooded with them. For the most part, we call them Negroes. Indians, Pakistanis, Orientals, Chinese, it doesn't matter. Mexicans. 
His watchmen are blind. They are all ignorant. They are all dumb dogs. They cannot bark, sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber. Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39 are talking of this same thing, where we are told that Gog and Magog and all of the alien peoples would swarm against the mountains of Israel and that they shall ascend and come like a storm. Thou shalt be like a cloud to cover the land, thou and all thy bands, and many people with thee. All of this is transpiring with the unbridled, unbridled immigration of aliens into white lands today at the insistence of Satan, the Edomite Jew. While other prophets and the revelation tell us the outcome of all of this, Yahweh sums it up for us most succinctly in Obadiah, where he says, in Obadiah 15, For the day of Yahweh is near upon all the heathen. As thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. Thy reward shall return upon thine own head. For as ye have drunk upon my holy mountain, so shall all the heathen drink continually. Yeah, they shall drink, and they shall swallow down the cup of Yahweh's wrath. And they shall be as though they had not been. Look around the mountains of Israel, the great nations of Yahweh's Israel, the white race today is for the most part descended from the children of Israel. And look at all these aliens. All of these alien nations currently feeding their bellies and their lusts at the expense of the children of Israel. And the promise in Obadiah says that soon they shall be as though they had not been. The New American Standard Bible renders that last clause and become as if they had never existed. So in keeping with the fact that Christ is addressing not one question here, but three in his answer, there's three questions being addressed in Christ's discourse here. We will repeat those three questions. The apostles had asked Christ, and it's recorded most fully in Matthew chapter 24, verse 3, Tell us, when shall these things be? Referring to the destruction of Jerusalem, that there would not be one stone left upon another. And what is the sign of your coming? Meaning his return, his victorious return as Messiah and King of Israel and of the consummation of the age, the end of the age, which he often discussed in his parables. Therefore, in relation to this prophecy of Christ recorded by Luke here, it is evident that there is one fulfillment of these words concerning the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, and there is another concerning the time of his coming and the consummation of the age. Now, to repeat the pericope of Luke concerning Jerusalem once again and interpret it in consideration of a second fulfillment. 
But when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, then you know that her desolation has come near. This process began in the 1960s with the beginning of unbridled non-white immigration, the gathering of all the nations, Satan's gathering of the nations from the four corners of the earth against the children of Israel. Then those in Judea must flee into the mountains. And those in their midst must leave the land. And those in the countryside must not enter into her. It is suicidal today for whites to live in the cities which are flooded with these aliens, to live amongst the beasts. Because these are the days of vengeance by which all the things written are to be fulfilled. That vengeance is upon the enemies of Christ and all those of Israel who were found joined to them are going to suffer with them. Depart from her, lest ye suffer her punishments. This process begins when mystery Babylon falls and is described in Revelation chapters 18 and 19. Woe to those having conceived and to those with sucklings in those days. For there should be great violence upon the earth and wrath for this people. The wedding supper of the Lamb in Revelation chapter 19 is when all of the enemies of Christ are fed to eternal destruction to the lake of fire. That is when all of the heathens feeding off of the children of Israel become as if they had never existed according to the words of Obadiah. Don't let your universalist Christian identity so-called pastors deceive you. And they shall fall by the edge of the sword, and they shall be taken away captive into all nations. Only a part of the prophecy concerns the time of the end. This last part concerns the fate of his enemies in 70 AD, and its fulfillment was realized exactly as he stated. For many Judeans from Jerusalem were carried off as slaves by the Romans, and a great number of them were settled on the estates of southern Italy and elsewhere in the Mediterranean basin. And Jerusalem shall be tread upon by the heathens until the times of the heathens should be fulfilled. This last part we have just interpreted to have a double meaning of the ancient city, but also of the major cities of the children of Israel in the later years, the future Jerusalem of the prophets. The next part of Luke chapter 21 helps to establish that this last part certainly does have a dual fulfillment, as we have just explained, since this next part of Luke certainly was not fulfilled in 70 AD from Luke Chapter 21, verse 25. And there shall be signs in the sun and moon and stars. And upon the earth, and I diverge sharply from the King James rendering here, and upon the earth an, affl an affliction by the heathens the sea and the waves roaring in difficulty, an affliction by the heathens. Literally, 
the, the phrase can be read, an affliction of nations, which really doesn't make much sense, right? The phrase by the heathens being a rendering of the genitive plural form of the word ethnos, Strong's number 1484. The phrase being sunoke ethnon. It has been often noted in these discussions of the Gospel of Luke that the word ethnos may be rendered as nation, as heathen, or as people, depending upon the context of the word's usage. Here, as previously in verse 24, I must let the context stand on its own. The implication here is that the affliction is by the heathens, or more literally, from the heathens, as the phrase may also have been rendered. The implication is plain in Greek, and the King James rendering of this phrase, where it has of nations, while it is literally correct, a literally correct rendering of the word by itself, in the context of the sentence, it is a clear error. The word, heathens or nations, or whichever one they prefer, the heathens here are not the ones being afflicted. If the heathens were being afflicted, in Greek, then the accusative case of the noun would be expected. Rather, the heathens are the source of the affliction. The genitive case is used to express either possession or source. An exactly similar grammatical construction that the King James Version handled appropriately is found in Acts chapter 14, verse 5. And the phrase, or may, or may means um, an attack in this instance. Or may tone ethnon, that same word, ethnos in the genitive plural, ethnon, te kahi yudahion, is translated in the King James Version, an attack of both the people and the Judeans. And in the context of the passage, the people and the Judeans together are the source of the attack. It's the exact same grammatical context that we have here, but in Acts chapter 14, verse 5, the King James Version got it right. Here they got it wrong. Soon oke known is an affliction coming from the people or the nations or the heathens, however you want to translate the passage, the, the word ethnon. Sunoke ethnon is an affliction coming from the heathens. All of the white Israelite nations currently being overrun with aliens, we may see exactly how the heathens are the source of affliction in these last days. The sea in prophecy, the sea in the waves roaring, in difficulty. The sea in prophecy very often represents the general masses of people. From Jeremiah chapter 51, verse 42, 
the sea is come up upon Babylon. She is covered with the multitude of the waves thereof. Her cities are a desolation, a dry land, and a wilderness, a land wherein no man dwelleth, neither does any son of man pass thereby. Another example from Zechariah chapter 10, verse 11. And he shall pass through the sea with affliction. That sea is not a sea of water. And shall smite the waves in the sea. It's a sea of people. And all the deeps of the river shall dry up, and the pride of Assyria shall be brought down, and the scepter of Egypt shall depart away. The sea and the waves are people. In Revelation chapter 21, we see a promise concerning the same sea which Christ depicts here in Luke. The sea and the waves roaring in difficulty. Those heathens causing us affliction. In Revelation chapter 21.1, we read, well, I'll read the first couple of verses of the chapter. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. It's not talking about the oceans. Talking about all those people feeding on Yahweh's holy mountain who will be as though they had not existed. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. We, the children of Israel, are the holy city. There shall be no more sea, because all of the aliens feeding themselves off of the children of Israel shall be as if they had never existed. Obadiah 15. Certain Christian identity pastors love to teach Obadiah 18, and somehow they skip over Obadiah 15. They skip it entirely. Verse 26. Men sainting from fear and the expectation of that coming upon the inhabited earth. For the powers of heaven shall be shaken. Men fainting from fear. The fall of Babylon, a good and necessary thing, will nevertheless put fear in the hearts of men when they see the world as they know it crumble, not having faith in God. Isaiah chapter 51, verse 6. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look upon the earth beneath, for the heavens shall vanish away like smoke, and the earth, shall wax old like a garment, and they that dwell therein shall die in like manner. But my salvation shall be forever, and my righteousness shall not be abolished. Hearken unto me, ye that know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear ye not the reproach of men, neither be ye afraid of their revilings, for the moth shall eat them up like a garment and the worm shall eat them like wool. But my righteousness shall be forever, and my salvation, which is only promised to the children of Israel, nobody else. My salvation from generation to generation. The salvation of Yahweh was promised to genetic Israel in the days of Isaiah. 
Everybody else is headed for the lake of fire. And obviously that does not change for it is promised from generation to generation. It's always for the genetic children of Israel. Isaiah chapter 51 insists that when it's all said and done, there's nobody left but the children of Israel. All these, all, all the world's other people, especially those in lands where the children of Israel dwell, feeding upon Yahweh's holy mountain shall be as though they never existed. I must address this last clause at length, for the powers of the heaven shall be shaken. Because there are those who want to take that statement and insist that it describes a forthcoming nuclear event. We will give the pros and cons. I think Bertrand Compare is where I first read this interpretation. Part of his reasoning is that the Greek word for heaven is uranos. And that is the word from which we get the word uranium, the metal most often used in the manufacture of nuclear weapons. But we can see from Isaiah chapter 13, where the fall of ancient Babylon is prophesied, or from Revelation chapter 6, where the fall of ancient Rome is prophesied. And language similar to the language in this passage of Luke is used in both of those chapters. And we could see that such an interpretation that it points to the use of nuclear weapons is not necessary because there were no such nuclear weapons when the powers of the heavens were shaken in fulfillment of those events. As it says explicitly in Isaiah chapter 13. The Codex Beze, which differs It differs quite often compared to the other ancient manuscripts where it is evident, and and the Codex Beze is far from perfect, believe me, but it is evident that many of those differences were to make adjustments for the reasons related to difference in dialect. The Codex Beze has this clause to read that the powers which are in heaven shall be shaken, just to demonstrate how they interpreted that phrase in the 6th century or the 5th century. That's a clue as to how the wording of the clause was understood in antiquity. The term the powers of the heavens can also represent the power of God's people on earth. However, there is, and I have to give Comparate this because he pointed it out, there is a very interesting passage in Isaiah chapter 25 which certainly seems to support his thesis. I don't necessarily accept it as meaning to, as an indication that that is what Christ is referring to. However, it does seem to support his thesis. I will cite it here. First explaining that Isaiah chapter 24 is another prophecy concerning judgment upon the nations of the world. Isaiah chapter 25 is a song of praise celebrating that judgment. And I will read verses 25, I'm sorry, chapter 25, verses 4 through 6 of Isaiah. For thou, meaning Yahweh, has been a strength to the poor, a strength to the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shadow from the heat, when 
The blast of the terrible ones is as a storm against the wall. Thou shalt bring down the noise of strangers as the heat in a dry place, even the heat with the shadow of a cloud. The branch of the terrible one shall be brought low. And in this mountain shall Yahweh of hosts make unto all people a feast of fat things, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of wines on the lees well refined. This heat, this heat blast, and the heat with the shadow of a cloud are certainly foreboding of a tremendous conflagration. So Isaiah chapter 24 and 25 were compares evidence that Christ here was talking about nuclear weapons. The jury is out. The prophecy doesn't exist so that we could see the future. The prophecy exists so that no matter how it happens, we can see it fulfilled and look back and knowing the words of the prophets, we know that God is true. And then they shall see the Son of Man coming in a cloud in the midst of power and much effulgence. Verse 27. There are scriptures which indicate that the word cloud here should be taken two ways, both literally and allegorically. First, Paul speaks of a great cloud of witnesses. So we see how the term may be used allegorically. Jude, quoting Enoch, says in his epistle, in support of Paul's statement, And Enoch, seventh from Adam, prophesied to thee, saying, Behold, the princes come with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment against all, and to convict every soul for all of their impious deeds which they committed impiously, and for all of the harsh things which the impious wrongdoers have spoken against him. However, secondly, we read, and this is the, where we must interpret this literally, right? We read this in Acts chapter 1, verse 11. The angels speaking to the apostles. Men, Galileans, why do you stand looking into the heaven? This Yahshua, who is taken up from you into the heaven, thusly shall he come in the manner which would be held him going into the heaven. It is at this point in the discourse where both Matthew and Mark record the words of Christ, which say, And at that time the sign of the Son of Man shall appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth shall mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming upon the clouds of heaven with power and much effulgence. And he shall send his messengers with a great trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from out of the four winds, from the ends of the heavens, under the extremities of them. That, that version was from Matthew chapter 24, verses 30 and 31. Luke 21, verse 28. And upon the beginning of these things happening, straighten up and raise your heads, since your redemption approaches. Christians should not fear what man may do to them, ever. Matthew chapter 10. Fear them not, therefore, for there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, and hid that shall not be known. What I tell you in darkness, 
that you speak in light, and what I and what you hear in the ear, that you preach upon the housetops. And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing? In other words, we only fear God. And one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear ye not therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. Wheresoever therefore shall whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. It's amazing. I've heard of Christian identity pastors who are worried that the Jews have their address. Christians should instead be happy when all of the signs here are manifest. We should never fear. But a promise of deliverance at the hands of our God is about to be fulfilled. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 Verse 51, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all fall asleep, but we shall all be changed. As I'd say, a chapter 51 surely infers. In an instant, in a dart of an eye, with the last trumpet, for it shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. This decay wants to be clothed in incorruptibility, and this mar mortal to be clothed in immortality. And when this decay shall have put on incorruptibility, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then the word that has been written shall come to pass. Death has been swallowed in victory. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? A lot of people want to take these end-time prophecies and, and sort of relativize them. I can't come up with a better word. That they want to interpret them in a manner in which they're twisted into the way that we perceive the physical world today. There are certain prophecies concerning the afterlife, concerning the future life from the end of this age to those of us who are deemed righteous in the eyes of God, and the state that we will inhabit at that time, the nature of the flesh which we will live in at that time, as we are promised, Job chapter 38, I think it's verse 19. There are people who want to relativize that and, and, and twist those prophecies and fit them into the world as they perceive it today. Really, the world of the Sadducees that denies. The world of the Sadducees denies that God can transcend this physical creation that we perceive presently. If Yahweh our God cannot transcend the physical creation that we perceive presently, 
and bring us along with that transcension. Transcension, is that a new word? Transcendence, perhaps. And bring us along with him when he transcends this world. Then he's not God. Then we have no God, and we have no hope, and we should burn our Bibles. I'm sorry, I'm at a loss for words today. Then he spoke a parable to them. See the fig tree and all the trees. When already they have cast forth, seeing it for yourselves, you know that already the harvest is near. Let's talk about some of the words first. The word probalo, 4261, is cast forth here. It's literally to throw before or to put forth and certainly seems to imply the ripening of the fruit on the trees as the ripe fruit very often simply falls off the trees. The word seros is literally summer, yet it infers the time of the harvest, so it's translated harvest here. Matthew and Mark each record this a little differently, and here I'll read from Matthew chapter 24, verse 32. Now learn from the parable of the fig tree, quite different. When already its branches should be tender and it would produce leaves, you know that summer is near. Mark corroborates Matthew's reading. Luke's not wrong, he just recorded it differently, or he recorded a slightly different discourse. To learn from the parable of the fig tree, we must look back at Yahshua's ministry and find the example. There was the fig tree from which no good fruit would ever again be produced, found in Matthew chapter 21, verse 19. And this fig tree is also portrayed in the parable of the fig tree in Luke chapter 13. Both of these fig trees are representative of Christ's missions to Jerusalem. In Matthew chapter 21 it says, And when he saw a fig tree in the way, he came to it and found nothing thereon but leaves only. And he said unto it, Let no good fruit grow on thee henceforth forever. In other words, if there weren't already good fruit in Jerusalem, and there were some, that could be demonstrated from the Gospels, nobody else would listen, and there would be no good fruit anymore. Henceforward, forever. And presently the fig tree withered away, at Luke chapter 13, it says, from verse 6, Then he spoke this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, it is three years from which I have come seeking fruit in this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down, for why should the land be useless? But answering, he says to him, the the vine dresser says to him, Master, leave it this year also, until when I should dig around it and cast manure, and so that it may produce fruit in the future. But otherwise, if not, you shall cut it down. Thus we have the three and a half years of the ministry of Christ. And no fruit was found in Jerusalem. Such is the old Jerusalem, and all who have their heritage in it, the people whom we know as Jews today. There can be no good Jews 
because Christ said there would be no good fruit forever from that fig tree. There can be no Jews for Jesus because Christ himself told us that no good fruit would ever come from there again. The good Jews and the Jews for Jesus are only Jews with motives seeking to further deceive and defraud unsuspecting Christians, Nathaniel Kavner. Today, these Jews have spread their vile doctrines of race mixing and sexual deviancy and usury and pornography and gambling and all of their other foul practices throughout every white Christian nation. And they have corrupted our politicians and deceived them into allowing us to be flooded with aliens and every sort of unclean and hateful beast. The fig tree and all the trees, according to Luke, according to Luke's version of the discourse of Christ, the version which Luke recorded, the fig tree and all the trees are certainly in full bloom at this very moment. Luke 21, verse 31. Thusly also you, when you see these things happen, you know that the kingdom of Yahweh is near. And again, I will quote from Matthew 24, and the record of Mark is quite similar in Mark chapter 13. Thusly also you, when you should see all these things happen, know that it is near by the doors. And this is where we stand today. The fig tree and all the trees have cast forth their fruits, and now we are surrounded by them. We await the moment of our redemption. Only then shall we hear the last trumpet, which Paul spoke of in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Trumpets in ancient days. Trumpets call people to war. There it is that we shall obey the words uttered by the prophet Micah in reference to this very day. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion. Micah chapter 11. I'm sorry, Micah chapter 4, verse 11. 2.13. Micah chapter 4, verse 11 through 13 is talking about the same thing. Now also many nations are gathered against thee when you see Jerusalem encompassed by armies. New Jerusalem, God's people, wherever they are. Now also many nations are gathered against thee that say, let her be defiled, Israel the whore of Babylon, the whore who joins herself to the beast. That's us. Look at our people. They're all joined to beasts. Let her be defiled, and let our eye look upon Zion. They're trying to claim our heritage. They're trying to inherit the earth. But they know not the thoughts of Yahweh. Neither understand they his counsel. For he shall gather them as sheaves into the floor, the gathering of the tares. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make thine horn iron, and I will make thy hooves brass, and thou shalt beat in pieces many people, and I will consecrate their gain unto Yahweh, and their substance unto the Lord of the whole earth. The children of Israel presently await that call. Verse 32.
Truly I say to you that by no means shall this race escape until all things come to be. Matthew 24, 34 has until all these things come to be. With which Mark 13.30 agrees, as do a couple of the a couple of the oldest manuscripts of Luke, the Codex Beze and the sixth century codex known as 070. Verse 33. The better codexes don't. They just have all things, right? Verse 33, the heaven and the earth shall pass away, but these words of mine shall by no means pass away. The word genea is rendered by its primary definition here, race, and not, as the King James Version has it, generation. By no means should this race escape. First, it must be realized that there were nearly 40 years between the discourse of Christ and the destruction of Jerusalem. The generation of the Exodus spent a like amount of time in the desert so that those who left Egypt, excepting a few, would not see Palestine. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 5 through 19, that's explained. Secondly, statements in verses 24 through 28 were not to come to fulfillment by 70 A.D., nor for many centuries later. In fact, we're still waiting for some of them. So Ganea must be interpreted as race and not as generation. The verb par erkomahi, Strong's number 3928, par erkomahi, most literally means to pass by, and here it's rendered to escape a definition listed by Liddell and Scott in their lexicon. The same verb, twice in verse 33, is rendered to pass away. It may have been rendered simply as pass in all three places without damaging the meaning. The intent is that the judgment of God upon his enemies is assured. The Jews will not escape the wrath of Yahweh, as it's spelled out in Obadiah 18. The beasts of the field are rising to devour the children of Israel, as Isaiah chapter 56 describes them, shall not escape the wrath of Yahweh, promised them in Obadiah, in Obadiah verse 15. And those things are also prophesied in others of the writings of the prophets. For instance, in Jeremiah, twice, twice Jeremiah, Yahweh states to the children of Israel, I will make a full land of all the nations where I have scattered you, but I will not make a full end of you, yet I will punish you for your iniquities. I will make a full end of all the nations where I have scattered you. That's the promise of God twice in the book of Jeremiah. I will make a full end of all the nations where I have scattered you. Where are the children of Israel not scattered? The judgment of God upon his enemies is assured. Isaiah chapter 51 insists that only the children of Israel are left. 
when that judgment is over with. Verse 34, now watch yourselves, that at no time should your hearts be weighed down with hangovers and drunkenness and the cares of life, and suddenly that day should come upon you like a snare, for it shall come upon all those sitting upon all the face of the earth. Now Christians have no need to abstain from beer or wine, for the apostles drank wine often. However, Christians must be moderate and not be given to drunkenness. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. But the consummation of all things has approached. Therefore, be discreet and sober in prayers. Christians should not be engaged in revelry, especially the revelry of the devil found in the modern Baal temples, which aren't the churches. The churches are are wicked and they teach people wicked things, but the modern Baal temples are the entertainment meccas of ancient Babylon. Today's clubs and casinos and sports palaces and other such places, they are the modern day Baal temples. At 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul discusses these same things which Yahshua prophecies of here. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need to be written to. For you yourselves know thoroughly that the day of the prince comes as a thief in the night. When they say peace and security, then suddenly destruction comes upon them. As soon as the Jew thinks he's established the Pax Judaica that they look forward to, and they believe they're close, that they're vaunting about it now, then suddenly destruction comes upon them. Even as a labor pang, the her who is with child, and by no means shall they escape. Paul is simply reiterating the teachings of Yahweh. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should surprise you as thieves. All of you are sons of light, of course, Paul is writing to the children of Israel, and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then we should not sleep as the rest. Rather, we should be alert and we should be sober. For those falling asleep, getting lost in the world, going off and not concentrating on the things of God. For those falling asleep, by night they fall asleep. In other words, they're in darkness. And those getting drunk, by night they get drunk. But we, being of day, should be sober putting on a breastplate of faith and love and a helmet, an expectation of deliverance. An expectation of deliverance, not worrying about what men may do to you. Because Yahweh has not ordained us for wrath, but for the acquisition of preservation through our Prince Yahshua Christ, who died on behalf of us, that whether we would be alert or we would sleep, in other words, we'll still be saved. Together with him we would live on which account you encourage one another, and you build up one another even just as you do. Luke twenty-one thirty-six. But you be watchful at all times, making supplication that you would prevail to escape all these things which are going to happen to stand before the Son of Man. Christians, do not hope for a rapture. 
which is based mostly upon a misunderstanding of Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Here the words of Christ are clear. And Christ is clearly coming to us on earth. We are not ascending to him. Rather, Christians pray with the hope that they are able to withstand the judgment which is coming upon the earth when Christ is made manifest. Verse 37. In those days he was teaching in the temple, then going out on the nights he camped in a mountain called of Olives. And all the people arose early for him to hear him in the temple. It must be noted that in a certain subgroup of those manuscripts which comprise the majority text, there was found here the same spurious interpolation which is found among some of the manuscripts of John from chapter 7, verse 53 through chapter 8, verse 11. Surely there is no need to repeat it here, yet its mention is warranted. The interpolated passage is commonly known as the parable of the woman caught in adultery. There's strong evidence that that was added to the Gospel of John, and apparently certain scribes attempted to add it here. And all the people arose early to hear him in the temple. Here is the evidence that at least many of the people of Jerusalem loved Yahshua Christ and loved to hear him. But in spite of that, the will of a corrupt but powerful minority prevailed, and Christ was crucified shortly thereafter. That's the end of my presentation of Luke chapter 21. I will be here next Friday with Luke chapter 22. Tomorrow night, I will be here with Sword Brethren. We will be presenting a speech by Dr. Joseph Goebbels entitled The Year 2000. After we present that speech, we will have a general discussion on why it is important that identity Christians understand Adolf Hitler and understand National Socialist Germany and understand that we must sympathize with them because they were fighting our fight. I've recently been called a neo-Nazi by certain charlatans. I gather, since I don't have any real neo-Nazi tendencies, I gather because I defend National Socialist Germany and seek to correct the historical record concerning World War II. It's incredible to me that a man who claims to be a two-seed-line Christian identity pastor could call me a neo-Nazi based on, I guess, based on the Mein Kampf Project at Christogenia.org. The Mein Kampf Project at Christogenia.org draws between 400 and 500 visitors per day. Every one of those visitors is clearly presented with two things. The two... Um, Key categories of content which I have on that site are Mein Kampf and my demonstration that Adolf Hitler was a Christian, that Mein Kampf is interwoven with Christian philosophy, both political and social. That's first. And second, 
the Jewish hand behind Bolshevism, communism, Marxism, and the destruction of, of National Socialist Germany in World War II. Those are the first two things that I seek to present to people visiting the Mein Kampf Project. It's amazing to me that anybody claiming to be a two-seed-line Christian identity pastor can blasphemously label me a neo-Nazi for daring to expose the deeds of the Jew in the 20th century. That's incredible. That man is an incredible hypocrite. And anybody who listens to him without correcting him is just as hypocritical. Praise Yahweh and thank you for listening. I will be back here tomorrow night at 8 p.m. Thank you, Matt.